Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Is there any science when it comes to moms and moms' involvement in their children's lives? We'll talk about that, whether you are single, married, a parent or not. It's an important topic that we dive into. We're going to get into the science of motherhood and that conversation surrounding childcare. I know it's a sensitive topic, especially as we head into the summer and a lot of people are trying to figure out what to do with their kids. And if you hear no other message, the message is this, parents matter. Moms really matter, and I hope that's what you take away from it. I know there's so much parent guilt and conversation out there today, but there's much to be said about what the science points to and what we're called to in our faith. We're actually going to talk about that difficult pull that we feel as women. How do we help women navigate the pull between the world and choosing a career over children? Should it even be a choice? Also, you may have heard Drew Barrymore, actress Drew Barrymore, has been slamming uh, the tabloids over the last day after an interview came out where the whole story was spun and the tabloid was that Drew Barrymore wishes her mom was dead. That's not what she said. There's a lot to be said there, especially regarding wounds with regard to motherhood and broken relationships with parents and healing and overcoming that. Drew was very candid about that experience. So we'll talk about that and more today on Trending, including the five precepts of the Catholic Church. So stay with me. Today on Trending is Erica Komazar. Erica Komazar wrote a book I came across some years ago that I was so impressed by as she in many ways was canceled in a certain respect by a pro-feminist culture, and she considers herself a feminist. And the book's called Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. I highly recommend this book. If you're trying to understand why a mom's presence for children is important, read this book. She is a clinical social worker and a psychoanalyst. We'll post a link to the book on social media as well as in the episode notes. Erica, welcome back to Trending. Thank you for having me again. You're research and book on motherhood is enlightening and encouraging, I think, for women. If we take any other perspective from that, it's hard, I think, for many mothers today to look at the research and saying, well, maybe I didn't do this, or maybe this is what I understood or what I believe. Yet you dive into so much of the research regarding the importance of moms. You wrote a really interesting paper recently that really pulls from your entire book, Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. Let's talk about the critical period of development for children. I'd love to start by talking about the part of the brain called the amygdala. Can you tell us a little bit about that part of the brain and why that's significant for children? Well, the amygdala is the stress regulating part of the brain. So it's the part of the brain that, um, you know, when you encounter any kind of adversity, helps you with resilience, essentially helps you to manage stress. And, um, and what we're seeing uh, are disorders, which I call stress disorders, things like anxiety and depression, 
ADHD are emotional regulation disorders, basically the inability to regulate stress in the brain. So this part of the brain is important, especially for children as they're developing. How does it function in the first few years of their life normally? Well, I mean, the amygdala is one of the older parts of the limbic system. It's a tiny little almond-shaped part of the of the right brain or the limbic system, which is part of the right brain. Um, and it's meant to be really very quiet in the first year um, and only incrementally come online, so to speak, over uh, that first three years of a child's life. So very slowly... Uh, when children are introduced to frustration. Um, but for the first year, it's meant to really be offline because babies in other parts of the world are carried on their mother's bodies, meaning their emotions and their physical being is regulated by the mother's body. So the mother's body is designed to regulate the baby's body and mind. And so when mothers carry their babies on their, on their chests and then on their backs, in other parts of the world, and even mothers who go off to work, mothers who work in the fields or work in, um, you know, artisans co-ops or, or bread ovens or whatever, wherever they work in other parts of the world, um, they carry their babies for the first year on their bodies. And that means that those babies' stress is basically minimal. Um, babies in other parts of the world don't cry like babies in the western world because we have this uh, value system in the western world of separating mothers and babies at a very young age making them sleep separately from mothers um, putting them in cribs in separate rooms um, you know putting them in daycare so it's it's a very bizarre thing it's, it's it goes against our nature really because babies are meant to be very uh, minimally um, exposed to stress in the first year. And then, you know, obviously there's always stress, a little bit of stress and frustration in a baby's life. You know, if the mother can't get to, to the baby quick enough to feed them or to change their diaper, or the mother has to, you know, go to the bathroom and the baby has to be with a caregiver or another, you know, another uh, family member for a moment. So there's always little bits of frustration, but there are moments that I call that can be easily repaired, right, and very quickly. So again, minimal frustration that's incrementally introduced um, after the first year for the next two years. So by the time the baby is three years of age, the baby has been exposed to incremental amounts of frustration. So the amygdala organically grows and becomes active very slowly. What we're doing now by separating mothers and babies and you know, deprioritizing children is we're turning on the amygdala very early. And so what happens is it becomes. Oh, we'll have to dive in a little bit more with Erica Komazar. We lost her there for just a moment. It's fascinating looking at the international research from neuroscientists to psychological researchers pointing to concern regarding the development of the amygdala, how the amygdala is activated and functioning in a critical period of cognitive development. It's interesting as, Erica, you're talking about the element of how we look at motherhood very differently, both in terms of time, the times we live in, but also 
in terms of the geographical location that people are in. It's riveting to me to actually look at the normalcy of centuries of right this whole idea, and there are even courses in this now for Americans because we've fallen so far away from it, of baby wearing, right? Like wearing your children, at your especially your infants, in those first months, especially that first six months and that first year, how regulating that is for the baby, how it develops through that what is meant to be a period of codependency later fosters independence in the baby and how that independence later on uh, can be held to see a, a great level of resilience in children. But early on, that codependency that is supposed to occur with a baby being dependent on mom, how that international research is pointing to this from baby wearing to the normalcy of children always being present with their children. We're talking about the critical impact, Erica, that occurs when the baby's amygdala is turned on earlier than it should be in those first few years because of separation from who's meant to be the primary caregiver being the mother. Well, it's the same as PTSD. So the same thing happens with um, soldiers who go to war is that they, um, they develop almost like a PTSD response. That's what happens with babies. They, you know... When exposed to too much stress and too early, those babies um, can no longer regulate their stress in the future. So I was using the analogy uh, of a light bulb in the kitchen that you know that you leave on overnight and then it burns out, right? So you, and, and essentially that's what happens. The ability to regulate stress because the amygdala becomes too active too early. Uh, the baby isn't able to regulate stress in the future. Think it sort of shrivels up the amygdala and ceases to function. And so what that means for the baby is it, that baby doesn't have the same ability to regulate stress and manage stress and adversity as a baby who uh, was protected or buffered from stress as much as possible in those first three years. My reaction sometimes in hearing and when I first read this in your work that babies are developing a certain sense of PTSD from separation from moms, it's heartbreaking. It might even sound extreme to some people, but when I was reading it, if you look at the broader spectrum of the mental health crisis today, Erica, it helps me at least in making sense of what's happening and why there's a mental health crisis. Can you connect mm -hmm. the two a little bit, please? Well, if you think about the first three years as the foundation of a, a child's personality, but also the foundation of their emotional well-being and mental health. So think of it sort of uh, as the basement that you build into a house. You know, um, if you build the foundation, then you know that that house is going to stand strong. Um, and what we're not doing is we're not building the foundation into babies. Uh, so when they, you know, when they become older children, when they're in school-age children, they don't have the internal resources that they need to uh, deal with adversity and stress, to regulate their emotions. I mean, we're seeing children uh, who can't regulate uh, anger, can't regulate aggression, can't regulate sadness, can't regulate distress. Um, and it causes, you know, fight or flight. And so those children, when they get to school age, they have uh, aggressive symptoms, meaning biting, hitting, um, not being able to get along with other children in school um, or, or at home. Um, we also see distractibility, you know, which is the, the flight part of fight or flight, um, which is, you know, fight or flight is our evolutionary way as human beings of responding to stress. So we see the fight or flight response in these children at a very young age 
uh, even when there's no imminent fear, but that's what we're seeing. We're seeing these children in, in states of fight or flight. Wow, you're listening to Trending with Timur here on Relevant Radio. My guest is Erica Komazar. She's a clinical social worker and psychoanalyst. Her book, I highly recommend. It's Being There Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. If you have a question for Erica, the number is 888-914-9149. We're seeing that many disorders are associated with what you refer to as attachment insecurity in infancy. You list anything from anxiety, depression, even ADHD, the overdiagnosis of it, personality disorders such as borderline personality disorder, and even the connection to that very uh, hot button word today of narcissism, narcissistic personality. Let's talk about the role of oxytocin and how oxytocin is a part of that very natural development of the relationship between a mom and baby that's supposed to be present in those first years that builds resilience to some of these crises of disorders we're seeing? Well, I mean, oxytocin is a neurotransmitter. It's called the love hormone. And it basically um, is what helps babies and mothers connect to bond and to attach. And um, and what we know about oxytocin is it's protective and it's protective against stress. I mean, basically the inverse relationship between oxytocin and cortisol, which is the stress hormone, uh, is that the more, um, more we are loved, the more we have a deep connection to our primary attachment figure, the more we feel secure attachment, the less stress we feel, um, the safer we feel. And so that becomes the foundation for that child's personality. When children don't have that foundation of feeling safe and secure and deeply connected to their mothers and attached, um, meaning if you think about what attachment security is, it basically is, uh, if I were to give a baby a voice, it is um, when I'm distressed, my mommy, or I guess sometimes my daddy, but mostly my mommy is there to soothe me and I can count on her uh, to, to care for me and soothe me when I'm in distress and I'm not alone. And so, you know, we, what we really have in society right now is a trend towards empathic impairment where people can't really feel for their babies. Um, they have a tremendously hard time um, putting themselves in their babies, um, sort of uh, in their babies in terms of empathy, like being in their baby's mind in terms of empathy, um, being in their baby's emotions and in their baby's feelings in terms of empathy. Because if they really uh, empathize with their babies, they couldn't leave their babies in daycare at six weeks. They, you know, um, they would do anything other than that. Um, so it, 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 is, um, it, it is a sort of trend towards empathic impairment, uh, which is really um, puts babies at risk and also puts adults at risk. And it's interesting because looking at a lot of the research today, I am seeing this trend toward many statistics showing that children who lack empathy have a higher tendency to look at pornography and mm -hmm. children who look at pornography have a, a lower tendency to be empathetic. And so this crisis of empathy is really building resilience in many areas. A crisis of pornography is 
very, very profound and prevalent in the culture. And it's hurting relationships. It's hurting children. And, you know, when you say this, it's a reminder for me, Erica, of understanding, you know, have a young baby, right? My daughter's five months old and my two-year-old daughter, understanding that her needs when she's distressed, she wants mom. No one can comfort a child the way mom can and how prevalent that is in those first few years of needing the security of mom because they view their identity in terms of mom. Yet moms, I know, you know, it's hard, I think, sometimes to understand that importance. And yet oxytocin is pointing right there. If only we held our children more or nursed our children more, it helps to attach us to our children as well. Well, it's it's also a sort of a crisis of not being able to see children as fragile. I mean, I think there's a lot of projecting onto mm-hmm. very young children that they're not fragile, that they're, um, and that Resilient. comes from our, yeah, that comes from our own need, I think, because in the end, if we see the fragility of our children, I think it scares some some young mothers and young fathers to see how fragile their babies are. And I think it also um, Im- implies that they're, responsible for that very vulnerable baby. Um, and, and so I think what happens is parents are going into defensive mode where they don't see the fragility. They turn away from the fragility. Instead, they project onto that baby that that baby is not fragile or vulnerable when in fact they are. Um, that's an illusion, right? And, and that's an illusion that society is promoting, that babies are born resilient and they're not fragile and they'll be just fine and don't worry about them. You know, in fact, you need to worry about them and you need to see their vulnerability and you need to see their fragility to empathize with the fact that that we are, as mammals, um, the most vulnerable species for the longest period of time. I mean, um, essentially, um, that baby comes out completely, entirely vulnerable and dependent on you. Uh, but very neurologically fragile. So there was one researcher that I interviewed uh, for my book who actually said that mothers are the central nervous system for a baby for the entire Mm -hmm. first year. So babies lack a central nervous system in the first year if their mother is not there. Wow, that's very profound. Mothers are the central nervous system for the baby for the first year. The baby doesn't have that regulation in his self or herself, in these fragile little individuals. And I get it, Erica, you know, I coming into motherhood with a second child now, I see, you know, I'm growing into motherhood more, seeing more of my strengths, valuing myself more in terms of what I can do, what I can offer, you know, even understanding the difference better with my second daughter when maybe she actually does just need me. And even though dad can comfort her and is willing to, that what she needs or who she needs is her mom and how regulating and good that is for her, especially sometimes at the most trying moments in the middle of the night. I know there's a lot of conversation today about, oh, you know, splitting it up equally at night. I get it. It's really hard. It's exhausting. But also understanding how important that role of mom for baby is, even in the middle of the night, as trying as that may be. Well, I mean, I think maybe I could use a metaphor um, that might be helpful, which is that, um, you know, we're not marsupials. Um, human beings are not marsupials, but essentially we are. I mean, marsupials are kangaroos and um, creatures who carry their babies in a pouch, you know, basically 
close to their bodies. They're born, but they're born incredibly fragile. And then the, the mothers carry the babies in the pouch until they're less fragile and can function outside of the pouch. Mothers in other parts of the world treat babies as marsupial babies, which is they keep the baby skin to skin contact on their bodies for the first year as if they are born like baby kangaroos. And that is what nature meant us to do. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to rewrite uh, what nature has taken millions of years to write. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to do it very quickly because we, 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 we feel frightened, I think, as a society of that level of fragility and dependency. I mean, dependency is a bad word, right? Vulnerability is a bad word in our culture in America. And so you know, really mothers are not seeing it for what it is, which is babies are as fragile as baby kangaroos who need to live in their mother's pouch. You could say that that baby needs to be on that mother's body as much as possible in that first year. There's no substitute for mom. A mom's presence throughout the day is foundational for a child's mental health, but for a child's future as an adult. I really do believe this is an answer to the mental health crisis we're experiencing today. We have a call from Charlotte in Wisconsin. Charlotte, welcome to Trending. What's your question for Erica? Hey, I had a question about, um, I work at a daycare. So I, I see children being dropped off for 10 hours a day. How do I... You know what I mean? How do I bring your book to their attention without, like, stabbing someone? You know, the word is a double-edged sword. You know what I mean? And I just feel so bad. But I want to tell these people, you are, you know, it's a long time away. And you say you work at the daycare center? I do. Yeah. So, again... You know, I, it's hard because you're an employee of that daycare center, so I don't want you to lose your job, and it's important that you keep your job. But at the same time, I wonder whether you could talk to the, whoever owns or, or is, the, is the head of that daycare center and say, you know, look, there's research to show that the, the number of hours in daycare determines how mentally healthy that child is. So the, the, the fewer the number of hours in daycare. So it doesn't take away from that daycare, the running of that daycare, but it does expose parents to the idea that the fewer the hours in daycare, the better off that baby will be. Um, it seems like a very common sense practical thing, but I think parents, again, really don't see the fragility, um, you know, and maybe offering parenting workshops to the parents on pickup, you know, even if it's just 30 minutes where you take out the book or you do a book club, you know, maybe mm. you do a book club using the book as a book club book um, and you just read a chapter uh, of the book. Maybe don't even ask the parents to read the whole book, just read a chapter of the book. Um, and there is research in the book about um, the fewer the number of hours in daycare the better off that baby is in terms of resilience. So, you know, I think use the book in a way um, not to, not to, because it, it's a business, right? A daycare center is a business. So not to um, diminish the business model for your employer, but to say, look, you know, we're going to end up with these kids really having issues and we'll have to deal with those issues. So maybe we can encourage these parents to have them in daycare for fewer hours. 
The thought I had, Erica, as well, is I find a lot of moms, women, lack confidence in their motherhood. And sometimes moms really do need to hear the important message that you have, and that is being there, that babies need you, and that there's an honesty in the fact that children are acting up or acting out or struggling when you're not there. And sometimes, as I imagine, even a daycare worker, like understanding you see that throughout the day and being honest with the parent and sharing, you know, Susie is acting up. I really do think, you know, she needs a little more time with mom, you know, but not being afraid in a gentle and respectful way to correlate the two to the importance of mom's presence. That's Erica Komazar. She's a clinical social worker and psychoanalyst here on Trending. She wrote the book, Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. If you have a question for her, the number is 888-914-9149. We're going to come back discussing how to help women, how to help us navigate the pull of the world to choose career over children. listening to Trending with Timry, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Welcome back. Joining me today is Erica Komazar, clinical social worker and psychoanalyst. She wrote a book, Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years of Matters. I love this book. It hits the hard truth, the fact that moms matter and babies need moms. I know there's a lot of, I think, response sometimes that this is a judgmental perspective. It's science. It gets into the neuroscience. We've been discussing it all hour with Erica Komazar. I'll also link to some of the other episodes she's done with me on how to be present to your child. I know you may have questions. You can give us a call, 888-914-9149. Erica, I want to unpack how we as women can help navigate the pull of the world between choosing a career over children. We talked about the importance of motherhood, but I think some of the practical side of it for women making that choice, along with the good as to why we are so important, why it's actually good for us as women is helpful as well. Let's dive into first how you would recommend starting to navigate this pull in multiple directions. Well, I mean, again, I, I think... The deprioritizing of motherhood um, came from, I think, a, a, a point in history where women were asked to choose between um, career and their and their children. And I think in other parts of the world, mothers have to work. I mean, you know, they have to be in the fields. They have to uh, gather. They have to create things to sell. They have to, you know, they, they have to work but they don't necessarily have to leave their children. So what we've done is we've sort of created a binary equation for women that, you know, you have to, to, to work and be out in the world and earn money. You have to be away from your children and you have to leave your children behind. And I think for me, that's, that's really problematic because I think um, it can't be a zero sum game for a lot of women because a lot of women depend on their income to survive. Um, and so then the question is, why aren't we making it easier for women to to work in fields that they can either do it from home or they can take their children with them? Um, you know, I mean, you know, also women have pursued professions that are what I call male dominated professions designed by men for men um, and environments that don't really take children into, into consideration, you know, uh, fields like 
law and medicine and, and finance. And I mean, these are fields that, that are, have made it very hard for women, not impossible, but hard for women to bring their children to work or uh, do it from home or, you know, so I, I think that um, it, it's really the way we think about work is the problem, that we think about work as being a very separate thing from, from having children. Mm, I think that's key. And it makes me think of my mom's approach. And when I was younger, my mom did not have a job outside of the home, but she volunteered much of her time in helping to make a better world, especially in the pro-life movement, helping women. She helped found a maternity home, did a lot legislatively in helping uh, women with access to choosing life for their children. And then in my teen years, she ended up working as a real estate agent and the time she had four children. And my mom, when she would go out to show property, because she intentionally chose a job that she could be home doing a lot of the work. And then when she'd go out and show properly property, Erica, she unapologetically would often take us with her, whether it was to the office, whether it was to show property. There was this expectation that at times we behaved and stayed in the car if that was the right thing to do, dependent upon who she was showing property to. And then in other instances, some of the clients would be perfectly fine with her who very unapologetically but lovingly brought her children with her and sometimes they would view the house with the client and I know that's not for everyone right but what I saw was that example that I always admired that she wasn't apologetic about having and bringing children with her that when she needed to work she did so bringing her children into the fold and in some respects it was another type of education for me as well. Yeah, I mean, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, uh, she took her baby to Parliament, <laughs> to New Zealand yes. Parliament. So, I mean, just the idea that, um, I mean, we've made the world really not a child-friendly world. And so no wonder women feel torn, you know, because many, as I said, many women have to work or also want to work, you know, partly. But there aren't that many part-time opportunities for women, fewer and fewer post-COVID. It's interesting. Um, you know, that we need to offer women the ability to work part-time and we need to also make it a child-friendly world so women can take their children with them or they can work from home. That would solve the problem of women feeling that it's a binary equation. Um, you know, if you can take, I always say to women, take as much time off in the early years as you possibly can because that baby needs you, desperately needs you, and you cannot get that time back. And there is nothing like that first three years in terms of that critical period of development. Take as much time as you possibly can. But for many women, that's not going to be three years because they don't have other sources of income or husbands or whatever. Um, you know, so the idea is take as much time and then choose a kind of work that you can do while still being able to prioritize your children. I mean, you know, women are feeling that they need to go into these male-dominated professions um, when, mm -hmm. in fact, the professions like helping professions, uh, being teachers, being therapists, being uh, social workers, um, you know, any helping profession offered women much more flexibility um, and, and even sometimes the ability to have their children with them. Mm -hmm. um, and those professions were uh, stigmatized during the feminist movement as, as, you know, unless you go out and you compete in men's professions in the men's world, you're a traitor to feminism. And that just, it, it lost the forest for the trees because women had all these wonderful professions that they could balance with children. 
Mm. And you make me think of a question I often hear people say they comment, well, that's privileged speaking. I, I get it and I don't get it. I think there are a lot of choices, but also necessity requires certain things. So, you know, I know people who do work difficult hours so that they can be for, there for their children because that's what is required of them for work. I also know uh, choices in terms of what you choose to study, professions you dive into. Mm -hmm what jobs you choose to take. I remember coming out of college, I started to be offered really neat opportunities uh, on the East Coast, uh, across the country. And I started saying no because I knew I wanted to be near my family. I started saying no to certain jobs as I was approaching getting married and after I became married because I knew I wanted to have a family and certain jobs, I didn't want to be pulled in different directions. I didn't want to be pulled from the idea of raising my children. And so when this opportunity came up to work here with Relevant Radio, I saw this as conducive potentially and I think it always depends on children. I reevaluate it always based on my children that it was something that would be conducive with raising and being present to my children and having that flexibility to work in a modified work schedule that is necessary when children come. I mean, I always tell women that when you choose a career, you choose a lifestyle. And that isn't a privileged thing because as you say, even if you're working in shift work, there are certain shifts that are better for children than other shifts, you know. Um, but, but yeah, it's what you it's it's the it's the direction you choose to go in if you're trying to pursue a career of some kind, um, you know, things like teaching and nursing. And so I'll I'll reveal something very personal, which is when I was in my early twenties, I had thought I was going to be. An attorney, I tried different things. And before I became a therapist, I tried, uh, uh, I tried television, I tried, um, and um, I thought I would be a lawyer and realized that, uh, in fact, the lifestyle of law was not conducive to raising children. And mm -hmm. so I changed and shifted my uh, my interest towards fields that I could balance my my work with my with with really having children and being able to prioritize them. So that was a real shift I made because mm -hmm. I had worked in a law firm and I saw that it wasn't a lifestyle that was conducive to raising children. Um, so you know, I think I think we don't catch women early enough, young women, mm -hmm. and help them to understand what um, you know the kinds of choices that they're making early enough so they can make the right choices yeah i agree i wish more conversations were had with teenagers college students but even before again catching them early enough before college even the reality of student loan debt and the impact and burden that mm -hmm. can have on getting married on having children on your ability to be free you know i think that there's a lot there are a lot of people who find themselves pigeonholed into having to work because of student loan debt or pigeoned into having to mm -hmm. work even because of expectations between spouses going into marriage and having children as well there are a number of questions coming in i want to dive take some time for some of these questions but before we do i would like to dive into the perspective of how from a religious perspective i know you're jewish and that is you know at the heart mm -hmm. of, for us as catholics as well we believe we're judeo-christians from a religious perspective how do you find motherhood is our charge as faithful women well in in judaism there is a hebrew term which is yisurea ahava which means um the sacred ob obligation of love and for for us as as jews um, children are our sacred obligation, as is taking care of our 
are aging and elderly and frail parents or siblings who are who are frail and ill. Um, and so, you know, nurturing um, is is a sacred obligation. And I think we've lost that because I think many people see nurturing, uh, you know, as a burden, but not as a sacred obligation. So that's the way I see it, which is that um, it is a privilege to be able to nurture those that we love. And it is a sacred obligation. You remind me in so many ways of the works of Pope St. John Paul II and how often he wrote of this theme. He wrote a whole book titled Love and Responsibility and how from the entire biblical narrative, from the dawn of creation, if we dive all the way back into Genesis chapter 1, that we see from the beginning we are made to be a gift of self and that love and responsibility stems on who we are as human beings, how our bodies are made, the sexual complementarity between male and female and what that reveals about us. And, you know, it's interesting because I think sometimes we say, well, there's no point where, you know, God says women never work, only raise your children. We get the perspective wrong when we say there has to be this perfect line saying perfectly what you should do. We see it by example, right? By that sacrificial love that is the story of salvation history. Well, women, again, as I say, women never had to choose between working and having children because women cared for their children while they were working. I mean, women always worked. I mean, this is a crazy idea. Women cared for their houses. Women cooked. Women Mm -hmm. collected uh, mushrooms and and collected foraged. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, women always worked, but they never had to leave their children to work. So Mm -hmm. the idea that women who stay home with their children aren't working is an offensive idea to many women. And it's offensive to me. Because women who are home with their children and taking care of a home are very much working and they're working very hard. And it's actually a 24 hour, it's 24 hours a day job, um, seven days a week. So uh, never goes away. So, yeah, I would say women always worked. Um, but the nurturing work was not seen as it is today. I mean, there are these websites which terrify me. Uh, as as a therapist, um, where women go on these websites and just spew all kinds of hostility and rage and hatred about breastfeeding, about giving birth, mm-hmm. about mothering, about caring for children, and and it's it's a very sad statement of where society is, I think. And the fact that even many of our healthcare workers do not help in nurturing the difficulty of nursing, the difficulty of childbirth, addressing the fear. I hear women who are terrified of birth because of stories or perspectives such as that that discourage them from having children or make them feel resentful. I think there's a lack of that really support that used to be present within families with regard to the gift and the passing on of that gift of motherhood and nourishing. I think grandmothers in this generation, meaning three generations back now, women have seen mothering as um, as as obligation and res- and seen it resentfully, really, mm-hmm. um, as if it's taking away from their me time. And and that is um, <laughs> you're right because I think generationally um, in the past, and I mean you know you know, 100 years ago, 80 years ago, um, you had your mothers and grandmothers admiring you for mothering. Now you have women 
saying to their daughters, you're, you're going to stay home with your children? Why would you want to do that? What about the education we gave you? Aren't you going to be successful in your career? Aren't you going to make lots of money? Like, 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 why would you stay home? Just hire somebody to take care. This is, this is what's going on in society. And this is why I wrote the book I did to, to elevate women, um, to help them to feel appreciated and, to, to help them to feel that their work is valuable um, because it's the most valuable work. But as a society, we've devalued it. And now mothers and grandmothers, three generations now back, devalue it as well. Hmm. Isn't that so heartbreaking that used to be generation, generationally that women were supported and encouraged and proud? And I think this is something women so desperately need to be told by their family members, I'm proud of you, you're doing well. This instills confidence. And so many of my peers who I see are struggling with the connection to their children because I don't think they are hearing exactly that message that should have been heard, that should have been part of their upbringing, even in the simple play they have with dolls at a very young age. Erica, I'm so grateful for your time with us today. I know so many questions are coming in, but we're running out of time. Um, briefly, if, do you have any recommendations for parents who, I know Lou is on the line from Brooklyn, New York, for parents who are seeing some of these same struggles with older children? What recommendations do you have for older children and the dynamic with siblings as well that they believe is being impacted by this? I mean, I would say always act on your instincts. If you feel that your child is, is struggling, then get help for your child. And I know that's not an easy thing to do today um, because <clears throat> there are so, so many children in need <clears throat> and so few mental health workers, but as, as quickly as possible, if you see your children struggling, um, get help, get therapy for them. Um, because the sooner you act on it, the easier it is to address issues. Can you briefly speak to the importance that while your fo your research really focuses <coughs> on prioritizing those first three years, the important role of parents even beyond that as well for children? Well, my second book is actually about nine to 25 or adolescents, but in between three and nine is a critical period as well. Um, it may not be called a critical period of brain development, but it is a critical period of development. Um, and it's a critical period of emotional development. And so, yes, parents are really important in those years of three to nine as well, because what they're doing in those years is they're reinforcing everything that children learn from zero to three. So you teach children in zero to three um, about security. And then from three to nine, you're basically reinforcing it every day over and over again, helping them to regulate their feelings and their thoughts and their experiences and their emotions. Um, you are their external, um, you, co you could say you're their external psychobiological regulator. You regulate their emotions. You help to regulate their bodies too, because their bodies are connected to their emotions. So you are critical in in those years of three to nine in terms of reinforcing helping to regulate their emotions. That's been Erica Komazar, the author of Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. We'll post a link to that and some of her other books as well on social media, as well as the episode notes. Erica, thank you so much for joining us today on Trending. I'll be right back, and we're actually going to talk about the topic of motherhood in relation to Drew Barrymore, and as she is really calling out the media and social media for the comments that they are publishing about and misrepresenting about her relationship with her mom. We'll be right back here on Trending.
You're listening to Trending with Timry, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Welcome back to Trending. I want to talk about Drew Barrymore and what's been happening in the media. I know I said we're going to talk about the pride precepts of the Catholic Church, and I'll name them off briefly now, but we're going to unpack those a little bit more tomorrow. The five precepts of the Catholic Church can be read about in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and they really do kind of have that baseline for us in understanding what part of our responsibility is as Catholics with regard to worship and our interaction with the church. One is that we attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation. I have a charge, a challenge for you. Do you know which days are the Holy Days of Obligation and why? Maybe take some time today or later this week putting on your calendar the Holy Days of Obligation, making time in your calendar to go to Mass on those days, and beginning to understand and study why those days in particular are set aside by the church as days where we are obliged to go to Mass, much obliged with joy, not looking at it as a negative obligation. That's important, even with regard to our Sunday commitment. The second of the five precepts is that we confess our sins at least once a year. That's the bare minimum. I know that we talk about it a lot here on Trending, that the saints before us have recommended time and time again that we really go about once a month. And I recommend if you're really struggling with something that you go every week. If you're struggling with a particular sin to modify your behavior, to glorify God through the grace of Jesus Christ present and available to us through the sacraments. Number three is that we actually are only required to receive the Eucharist once a year, and that's during the Easter season, which is why you need to go to Holy to confession at least once a year to prepare yourself to be predisposed to receive our Lord. Number four is that we observe days of fasting and abstinence as prescribed by the church. So we have those seasons of fasting and abstinence during Lent and even during Advent. But also the church historically has always set aside Wednesdays and Fridays for particular penances, for particular abstinences and fasting, especially Fridays being dedicated to not eating meat all year long, not just during Lent. The bishops of the Catholic Church have encouraged us to give up that sacrifice of meat on Fridays all year, in particular in prayer for an end to abortion. Number five of the five precepts of the Catholic Church, which we'll unpack these in a greater length tomorrow, is that we help provide for the needs of the church. What does that mean? That means, yes, the church that we go to Mass and in worship, but also the needs of the church in terms of our community, the needs of the community physically, emotionally, spiritually. And that's why we talk about even those difficult topics, which we've been covering today on Trending, having to do with the fundamental contribution that only moms can have for their children. I hope you'll listen. It's available via podcast later on this evening, talking about the importance of moms and their presence for children, the emotional and psychological regulation, development, and resilience into adulthood that is created and nourished through moms being present throughout the day, not just at moments, but throughout the day with their children. Speaking of motherhood, I do want to take up for just a moment some of the controversy that's been circulating online with regard to Drew Barrymore. You may have seen a headline mentioning that Drew Barrymore wishes that her mom was dead. And maybe for those who know Drew Barrymore's past, you might not be that surprised that there may be some ill wishes toward her mom. But that's actually not what the story is. There have been a number of interviews done, one including with E.T., where the uh, actor actually addresses with E. Hollywood, sorry, the E.T. 
E.T. actress addresses with E. Hollywood and others in some of her interviews a little bit of her vulnerable side and experience with her relationship with her mom. If you don't know, Jade Barrymore predominantly raised her as she had an absent father growing up. And Drew Barrymore was legally emancipated at the age of 14 from her mom. Her exposure to drugs and alcohol, this was the reason why. Her mom actually took her when... Drew was a childhood star. She actually took her to parties and treated her like a best friend as she tried to soar above the rest in her work as a childhood actress. And what ended up happening, if you didn't know this, her first glass of champagne was drink at age eight, and she was actually using cocaine already at the age of 12 to help her with the depression and sorrow that she had. By the age of 13, she actually found herself in a rehab facility for eight months. Now, Drew Barrymore, again, at the age of 14, was emancipated from her mother. And so in an article where she talks about some of those pains, some of those difficulties, uh, she was sharing that for some uh, people, it's a little easier to go through with the pain of uh, motherhood, right, of your mother when the mom has died. And sometimes it's harder when you're seeing your parent face to face. So they're still there. It's sometimes more challenging to go through healing from that wound. So she's sharing her experience and the world really takes the story by storm and shares all over social media that she wishes her mom dead. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But Drew Barrymore actually took to social media uh, to address what the media and social media has been saying about Drew's relationship with her mom and claiming that she wanted her dead. I have never said that I wish my mother was dead. How dare you put those words in my mouth? I have been vulnerable and tried to figure out a very difficult, painful relationship while admitting it is difficult to do while a parent is alive. And that for those of us who have to figure that out in real time, cannot wait as in they cannot wait for the time, not that the parent is dead. I was listening to this. I know it's a very sensitive topic, wounds with regard to parents, but I kept looking at how here's a woman who's healing from the wound of her mother at a young age. She actually still financially supports her mom, even in the face of the fact that they've never fully reconciled. But there's legitimacy to what Drew's saying in that broken relationship of that desire to heal and her desire to heal. And from a Catholic perspective, I kept thinking of Psalm 27, of for those who have experienced that brokenness with parental relationships, how God, our Heavenly Father, is here to fill the void, to fill the gap of human frailty and the wrong that so many people have experienced. I think of Psalm 27 that talks about dwelling in the house of the Lord and beholding the beauty of the Lord. It's a glimpse of talking about the beatific vision, which is a teaching that we hold very dearly in the Catholic Church. But in that Psalm, it talks about waiting for the Lord and that God doesn't cast his children off, that in the face of perhaps even being forsaken by biological mother and father, that the Lord himself will take us up teach us his ways, lead us in the proper path, and that in him we are called to wait for him, to be strong, to take heart and have courage in the Lord and dwell in his temple and ponder him in the face of our wounds. 
This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Wednesday, I'll be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. He's known as one of the top law enforcement trainers historically in the nation. He wrote a new book on hunting, and he connects the importance of understanding how hunting is fundamental to helping us understand humanity in general. It's a fascinating study. It dies into everything from the psychology of killing to the connection of honoring and respecting the human person. Join me daily, 6 p.m. Central, on Relevant Radio.